Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, and I'm on the move again this week. I am in Sydney, Australia, recording episodes on Australia and the Vietnam War. So keep your ears open for those in the coming weeks. But this episode is with a legend of military history, Professor Paul Kennedy. He was my former head of institute over at Yale University. So I went and visited him a few months ago to talk about his new book on the history of the Royal Navy and victory at sea. Enjoy. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm really fine, thank you, and thanks for allowing me to do this with you, James. Not a problem at all. Thanks for inviting me back into Hill House here at Yale, a, a place with a, uh, a prestigious pedigree of history, but also naval history as well, and the perfect place to be talking about this topic today. So maybe you can take us back to the 1930s and the dawn of the Second World War. Just how powerful was the Royal Navy during the 1930s, and at that point in 1939 when the war began? 1930s must be for people who don't understand it, very curious and more than distant, just so totally different. The First World War had caused everybody in the West and in the democracies not to want war again, but nonetheless, the democracies, that is the United States, Britain and France had kept up some degree of naval building and certainly large navies. Mussolini's Italy had built a spectacular navy. The Japanese were building a big, big navy. And it's the beginnings of uh, recreation of the German navy. So here's a situation quite unlike that today of three very large naval powers and three medium-sized but also fast-growing naval powers. It's a multipolar world. And it got to the point during this period where navies were expanding so much they had to have an international agreement to limit the tonnage of these ships. The international agreement had come as a reaction against the First World War being, as it was argued, the result of arms races on land and at sea. So it was easiest to limit on sea because battleships were clearly identifiable things, whereas hard to distinguish between regiments and battalions and brigades and everything else like that. After 1936, though, 
the wraps were off. There was no longer any of the Washington or London naval agreements. At that time, when one looked, surveys the navies of the world, the number one navy still is the Royal Navy. It's partly because the U.S. has kept to its, or kept slightly under the treaty limitations, interestingly, through those 15 years of a treaty. It's partly because the Royal Navy's predominance is not just sheer warship tonnage. It's an incredible array of naval bases and interconnected by marine cables all the way across the world. Main fleet to Singapore, as the old saying would be, might well be a certain number of cruisers leaving Portsmouth, going down to Gibraltar, going on to you know, Malta, then to the Suez Canal, then down to Aden, then across to Trincomalee, and on to Singapore, and maybe up to, you know, maybe up to Hong Kong as well. Uh, there's no equal to that. So positioning and geography buttressed British naval power. So even though the British Admiral worried rightly so about the possibility of a triple challenge to their naval preeminence in, in Europe and the Mediterranean Far East, they had a lot of cards stacked with them. So the Royal Navy is truly a, a global power that rules the waves at this point in time. But you talk about that triple threat, and it's going to take a triple threat to take on the Royal Navy. So when would you say the, the great sea battles of the Second World War really begin? So the Admiralty, like most naval authorities, like most military authorities, always play worst-case scenario. It helps in their budgets. It, it is part of their professional thinking, I guess. The worst case scenario, that is to say, fighting against three navies and suffering some losses against three navies, probably came at the very end of 1941. The loss of the Prince of Wales and the repulse in the Far East had just followed the sinking of the big battleship Barham in the Eastern Mediterranean. It was only a few months after the sinking of the famous Ark Royal. Of course. There were the Italian midget torpedo boats attack and the sort of crippling of the Mediterranean fleet in Alexandria. So the Royal Navy in a particular time lost four major ships and had two others put out of action and was still fighting this incredibly difficult because not able to be immediately decisive but difficult Battle of the Atlantic. So I would say late 41 to early 42 and this is where Churchill and his chief not just the naval advisors, but say his chief military advisor, Alan Brooke, are talking about the backs to the wall. And so they were. Yes, Field Marshal Alan Brooke. I'd say Britain's greatest yet forgotten Field Marshal, perhaps. And he was later put in charge of, of home defence. So he was keenly aware of the things that were coming Britain's way at this point in time. So 1941, 1942 things aren't going great for the Royal Navy or for the Allies more broadly. But in your new book, Victory at Sea, you take us through to 1943 and you call it the critical year. What made 43 that critical year? I should preface this answer by saying any one of us can get a hold of the different parts of the camel or the elephant and say this part is, you know, the, it's the Battle of Moscow is a turning point, Stalingrad is a turning point, landing, the torch landings are a turning point. Each of them has validity here. So when I say 43 is a turning point, it's just to call readers' attention to two or three things which happened in 43, 
which are not there beforehand. One is in the struggle against the U-boats in the Atlantic War in a couple of critical convoys in May and June 1943, having had the miniaturized radar put on the British and Canadian destroyers, frigates and sloops, you actually could see the U-boats coming on the surface. You could turn around and attack them and really cause Dönitz in his war diaries to say the defeats in May 1943 were the end. We have lost the Battle of the Atlantic. He might be exaggerating for later purposes, but it looks like that. 43 in the Mediterranean sees the, the elimination of the German and Italian positions out of North Africa, sees the invasion of Sicily. Absolutely, Operation Husky. And then uh, moving on to the tip of Italy and the fall of Mussolini and the surrender of the Italian fleet. So there's a massive changeover by September 43 there. So what discussions are going on in the Admiralty at this point when the Italian fleet is, well, it becomes a, an ally for all intents and purposes. Is this something that really is a game changer? It's no longer a game changer because the Italian fleet has been so timid in the preceding times that it, the, the Italian admirals, I think, with one or two exceptions, really didn't trust Mussolini in any case. Secondly, they were overly, I say overly terrified of the British aircraft carriers. The attack on Taranto, one or two other occasions in the Battle of... That, that was a daring attack, wasn't it, Taranto? Taranto is an attack on the Italian main fleet by a bunch of old string, string bags, swordfish, torpedo aircraft, yes. but nonetheless incredibly effective because actually if you're dropping a torpedo, James, it's probably best that you fly in at 155 miles an hour rather than 355 miles an hour. Yep. And in the Battle of Cape Matapan, it had been the aircraft carrier from one of uh, Cunningham's carriers. It had been the aircraft which had, which had struck at one of the Italian ships, causing that them to fall behind and therefore get beaten up at sea by the radar control superior gunnery of the Royal Navy. So what I'm saying here is that had the Italian Navy operated with you know, very great aggressiveness in, in, in the way some of the, of the Japanese and some of the German admirals did, then it would have been a very different war in... It was bad enough for the Allies because they had to get the Malta convoys through but the surrender of the Italian fleet was somehow foreordained almost after the invasion, the Husky invasion in November and December of 1942. Still, the fact that one of your three enemy powers had been knocked out, that you could therefore no longer need any Royal Navy heavy ships in the Mediterranean from then on, apart from old battleships to support you know, Anzio landings, etc., you could begin to prepare the Royal Navy for a large performance in the Far East. Okay, so the key thing here is that it frees up capacity, which is just so incredibly important. But just to go back to this point about Italy, you know, we, we give the Italian military just broadly a really hard time for their performance during the Second World War. But listening to what you're saying here, it's less about the bravery or ability of the Italian fleet, and it's more about the political nuance of their naval leaders. Yeah. And it really shows the importance of 
politicians making sure you have the military on side before you go into wars like this. Because do you think it really would have made a difference if the Italians had gone full offensive? Did they have the ability? Did they have the capabilities to be a real thorn in the side for the Allies? They had much greater capability than the admirals understood it to to be the case. Ah. I mean, at the beginning of the war, Italy is it holds back in September 1939. Mussolini and Tiano, his foreign secretary, explained to Berlin that unfortunately we cannot come in because we don't have any coal, true. We don't have any oil, true. We don't have this, that, or the other. Could you kindly supply it? The list, Tiano says, is enough that of they want the Germans to produce is enough to kill an ox. So it isn't until the fall of France that it, the Italians decide, okay, now we'd better get in because we want at least some of the spoils. At that stage, though, they're still intimidated by the British Royal Navy. This overhang of impressions of the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean, in the, in the Victorian and Edwardian era is just there. And it meant that there are some occasions, surely when an Italian aggressiveness by the battleships, uh, somewhere on the lines of the aggressiveness and fighting of the midget submarines of, and of some of their destroyer captains in the convoys to North Africa, could have produced pretty, pretty strong reverses for the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean and set back by a long way Churchill's Mediterranean strategy. So the, the Royal Navy's reputation pays dividends here and holds strong. But during this period, are there any incidents that, that start to dent that reputation? What are the dark days for the Allies and the Royal Navy? It's a whole succession of blows. And so I won't immediately start wobbling, going on the other side and talk about all of the advantages like decrypting and things like that. So the loss of the almost charismatic aircraft carrier Arc Royal, the close to starvation of Malta in 41 and the spring of 1942. It's interesting now, James, if you look at the cabinet memorandum, cabinet discussions, there's a serious discussion in 42 about whether to just pull out of Malta, just essentially demilitarize it and leave. And it's, it's the decision to have a further strong set of convoys is almost one last gamble. Well, and what a gamble. I mean, it limps into port. I say, I say it, as in the convoy limped into port. Operation Pedestal, what we had one final ship, thank goodness, with its fresh water supplies in its base and just enough fuel to keep those Spitfires and Hurricanes going. You know, that's a high-risk, chance-taking mission. It's a wonderful, wonderful story if you've ever been to Malta to hear the story from the Maltese side because the SS Ohio, the... Oil tanker was the only remaining oil tanker afloat and therefore absolutely critical with its high octane supplies and repeatedly attacked the crew taken off, some Royal Navy crew put back on it being carried literally into Malta Harbour. It, it limps in on the morning of August the 15th, which is in the intensely Catholic island tradition of Malta, it is the Feast of Our Lady of the Assumption. And so there is, when the news comes, and there are many of them are at church that morning, when the news comes that something else is limping into the harbour, and that many of the men, are, like 
slip out of church increasingly and run along to the harbor to see it coming in and then cheer it. So it is, it is the feast of Our Lady of the Assumption, SS Ohio. Wow. It's all blended together there. It must have been incredible because it is a religious society. You come out of church and that feast is presented for you as if by God themselves. And Malta was having a seriously hard time. You know, when I've been down, I've spoken to the people who've, who've lived through this period. You know, they're setting fires to tires, to anything they can to create this smoke stream above so that you don't get those Axis planes hitting targets within Malta. They've had their entire food stock littered with cluster bombs. They're having a really hard time of it to the point they've become subterranean. I don't know if you've been down into those tunnels, but that's where they were living. So is this point here, Malta, liberated almost through 1942 as we enter into 1943. Is it this point here that we can start to say that things start to change for the Allies? As you say, the fuel brought in by the SS Ohio then allows the Spitfire squadrons a further breathing space for a, a month or so, by which time Montgomery's forces have started their long advance along the the North African coast from Egypt westwards, there's increased reinforcement of uh, Royal Air Force medium-sized bombers and others in North Africa. You're beginning to get domination of the sky on the North African littoral to join the domination of the sky coming out of those multi-Spitfire squadrons. And within another few months, then by November, you've got the decisive landings in North Africa Operation Husky, and Mussolini's Italy is being pincered by two ends of the Mediterranean, and Malta has not fallen. Some of these surrendered Italian warships, many of them would go across to Benghazi, which are already in, in Allied hands by autumn of 1943, but some of them do surrender into Malta itself. Oh, wow. And so, Admiral Cunningham is pleased to send a message to their lordships of the Admiralty that the surrendered Italian fleet lies under the guns of the fortress of Malta. It's very slightly pompous but and dramatic. Poetic. Melodramatic. I'd say poetic. Um, but there it is. And so it's around this time that Alan Brooks says, well, we might not be at the beginning of the end, but we're at the end of a beginning. We can move on now. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists. Tour Central Park before it was Central Park. And a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Hold up. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Take us through that end of a beginning. Take us into to 1944. Is it, we might not see the victory of sea power at this point, but do we start to get a, a sense of triumph? Does it start to overwhelm both the German fleets and then the Japanese fleets? Yes, and in in maybe in reverse order. There's been a long sort of hiatus in large-scale surface fighting in the Pacific after Midway. The Japanese are intimidated by the loss of their four fleet carriers. Maybe they shouldn't have been by so much. The U.S. Navy in the Pacific loses a number of its carriers, like the Wasp to a submarine and others. So by early 1943, it's got you know, the Saratoga down in the Southwest Pacific, intrepid for a little while before it's pulled back. There's otherwise nothing else in the Pacific until the new carriers start streaming in after June 1943. But this is the important point, isn't it? The the United States is able to replace those carriers. Its war machine has started up. And it's also interesting to notice, and this is why I spent some time on this in the early chapters of the book and just before the beginning of the war, it's the 1940, 1939 and 1940 authorized congressional budgets for the Navy, which are key here, especially the fright which overtook the Congress in June 1940 at the fall of France, which caused it to double the requested yeah. U.S. Navy authorizations. But this list of, say, 24 new fleet carriers and so many giant battleships could not be turned into the real ships until a considerable number of months following that and years following that. So it is only at the very end of 1943 that you begin another significant move in the Central Pacific with sort of Gilberts and then moving on to the Marianas. And it's not until 44 that you're getting really big, decisive fleet actions again in the Central and Pacific, the, Mar- the Great Marianas Turkey shoot, and then the Lady Gulf Great Operation in the middle of the 44. And by that time, flipping back to the, the German side of the fight against the German Navy, 
Hitler's large surface ships have been picked off one by one. They never had a chance of being able to come together as Admiral Rader had once. You know, used to have dreams of, say, the Bismarck and the Tirpitz and the Scharnhausen and Eisenhower and some of the heavy cruisers of the Hitler class all sailing out and being powerful enough to destroy the Royal Navy. It never happened like that. So they went on single missions and the Royal Navy, despite the overstretch of its resources, was always able to have a sufficiency of forces in the home fleet at Scarpa Flow to keep control of the North Atlantic. Yes, absolutely. And to outmaneuver them as well up in that region of the world. I don't know if it's, it can't be due to, you know, experience of operating up there. It must surely be the, the Royal Navy's tactical nous to be able to, to really turn and trap some of these most incredible battleships that the Germans have and to take them out in a, in a remarkable, of course, tragic style with the amount of loss of life that you have there. But it's those battles that are turning points because once you don't have those, those big three operating, then the Royal Navy can start to rule the waves once again. Indeed. The terrific advantage the Royal Navy has of surface radar time and again, if one looks at the, the last of the battles of the heavy German warships, the Scharnhorst, the Battle of the, up on the North Cape. Well, the Scharnhorst had its radar taken out, right, by a quite fortuitous shot, which left it completely blind to where Belfast and Norfolk and everyone else were. But the fact that the Scharnhorst was lost for a while but could be picked up at long-range radar. Ah, okay. And uh, Belfast and Norfolk could then send a message to uh, the British battleship, the Duke of York, yeah. to close in in a particular direction. The radar advantage of the British against the German warships, and uh, to repeat what we said earlier, against the Italian warships, was really terribly significant. And the U-boats. And the radar advantage against the U-boats. The radar is key. Yes. In an appendix which I put in, to victory at sea, I get the Admiralty report of the command of the British escort forces in this convoy ONS-5, which is a convoy going back across the Atlantic. It's empty merchant ships, but still they have to be, be filled up with goodies and then brought back. So they're equally valuable, but in a fight off the Newfoundland coast in the middle of the mists and the darkness, on May, I think it's 5th and 6th, you get again the reports, you know, 1.15 a.m. in the morning, HMS, like whatnot, picks up object on the surface two miles out, goes to investigate the object, you know, crash dives, obviously a submarine. It's, it's depth charge and depth charge, and you learn afterwards it's U419 and U712 and U89. So five, six, seven U-boats in one against one convoy, some damaged, and Dern is forced to pull the U-boats back out of the North Atlantic because radar is... I wonder, James, if it is, if you're going to list which of the particular technical advances of the 1930s was the most significant. Think of radar in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Radar in the Pacific that Nimitz's forces often have against the Japanese. Yeah. And then radar particularly for the British. 
It has to be, because without that radar advantage, and we've had episodes on this, we had Norm Fines on about his new book, you know, without that, you wouldn't even have the, the D-Day landings. You wouldn't have that, that clear run to be able to take a landing force in because you'd have been blown out of the water. So it's at this point by 1944 that radar genuinely has paved the way towards victory. So if, if that's the key points that do lead the Allies to victory, then what can we start to learn from this period that you cover in your book? From 36 to 46, about the rise and fall of great powers, about the world that we live in today? Two or three things. You're not a single one. I'm one of those historians who dislike single interpretations or, or single arguments about things because history shows us the complexity of things. First of all, there's cold-blooded critical assessments of where your nation is in the world, in a multipolar world in regard to various contingencies which might happen. You surely, like me, must be struck at op-ed after op-ed, which we see nowadays about the great threat coming from Iran and the Middle East conflagration. And that's usually written by a scholar of the Middle East. And then there's a vast number of experts on uh, China, 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 right? Absolutely. Then there's a great amount of those on Putin and the Ukraine and Russia and everything else like that. Is it unfair to talk about tunnel vision there? So I think that when we say what are the conclusions or what observations generally what might make here is that leadership counts, intelligence and good intelligence assessments count, technology which gives you the upper hand in detection, first of all detection, destruction comes later, but detection first of all, a balanced fleet. Mm -hmm. It's true, both the Japanese and the British are always striving for a balanced fleet. The U.S. story is, of course, it tries for a balanced fleet, then the battle fleet is wiped out, so forth. it becomes an unbalanced aircraft carrier, heavy fleet, where the, by 1944, these giant, new, impressive American battleships have nothing to do. Yes. And therefore, the U.S. Navy in the Pacific is essentially a carrier navy with... The cruisers and heavy cruisers are incredibly useful. The destroyer escorts useful. The submarines of the U.S. Navy, after you got rid of the two-year struggle about the torpedo defects, yeah. also very useful. So balanced Navy, and then trying to figure out if you have not one but two or three areas in which you may have to fight, how do you sensibly work out the juggling act, the gigantic juggling act. We see the British in particular from 39 through into 42, 43, doing that juggling act. And with the help of the United States covering in the Far East and bringing down the Japanese, it's then the juggling act is a two-way juggling act with the defeat of Italy in 43. It's just a, by that stage, just a singular one-on-one -on -one against a much smaller and reduced Dernitz's navy. And as you talk, Paul, 
in my head, I have these flash of lights connecting up all the dots of all the places you're talking about around the world. It's giving us a global view of what is happening. And you speak about tunnel vision today, about these op-eds on Iran or China or Russia or Putin or Ukraine or Belarus or all these different individual aspects. Is that what we're missing today? Connecting all of these dots. We need more analysis showing us what this means, why this matters for the future in terms of broader global events. Yes. I'm not sure that I've seen any op-ed or any article or any piece in even foreign affairs which you'd expect to happen where somebody has sat down and said, can we just do a, just a brief global survey of what are the problem points for the United States in the world and then think through how you may wish to prioritize them and then think through not just this list of challenges and dangers, but then also do the Andy Marshall Office of Net Assessment Absolutely. Uh, sort of exercise and say, well, what is the array of the strengths that our allies bring to this story as well? And what's the overall picture look like? The weaknesses on the one hand, but the very considerable strengths on the other hand. And if you are bringing the consideration of America's allies into this, then we're talking about NATO. And that proves the point, because you look at NATO's northern flank, then we're talking about elements of the Arctic, which... You know, you look at the relations between the West and Russia up in the Arctic, the West and China, you start to see tensions growing since this acceleration of Russia's offensive war against Ukraine. It's not the start, it started in 2014, you could take it back earlier. But then you look at NATO's southern flank, you're starting to look at North Africa, you're moving down into the Sahel, you're looking at Niger and the rise of terrorism, or perhaps even Russian and Chinese investment in that region. So you can't talk about the Allies, you can't talk about the United States and their interest around the world, without looking at not only a regional point of view, but those broader global connections. So that can be our, our message out from this, this podcast. Get out there and connect the dots. Wow. Easier said than done. <laughs> you're not wrong. You're, you're not wrong. Now, before I let you go, Paul, a couple of years ago, me and you were chatting, and you promised me that there would be some exceptional works of art within this book. You're pretty excited about it, and you fully delivered. The work that has been done by Ian Marshall is exceptional, and it really adds that extra layer to understand what you're talking about. How did you start working with Ian? Ian was originally from uh, southern Scotland, Ian Hamilton Marshall, and was trained as an architect, worked in Rhodesia and South Africa, married an American lady, Jean and ended up in a studio in up in Southwest Harbor in Maine and started painting warships chiefly of the Victorian era and having them in some sort of annotated collective form brought out by sort of naval art specialist publishers. So I doubt if you know certain of his early works May, if it sold more than 1,500 copies, it would be a surprise to me. Then, he, I mean, he's broad enough to paint things other than warships. He does a wonderful book called Passages East, which is about the P&O and Royal India liners going you know, through the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal to India in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s until it's all over. He does a lovely work on flying boats. Okay. So he's done about three or four interesting 
quirky, you might say, but beautifully rendered paintings because he's much influenced by the 18th, 19th century English school of maritime art, Constable, Turner in particular, the Turneresque skies. And the emotion of it all, you can take it from Ian's work. Yes, so I already knew by reputation from a number of scholars like John Haddendorf, John Sumida of this quiet, lovely naval painter. Before I actually met him, I think at a particular conference, and then I asked him back to talk about his art at a, at a mini workshop. And therefore, when he came through one time to say that he was had been asked to do a series of new paintings on aircraft carriers, which would then form part of a permanent exhibit in the newly refurbished USS Intrepid to be permanently anchored in New York Harbor. Absolutely. Uh, I thought this was really wonderful. And therefore, the news when Ian came through crestfallen two years later, that a decision had been made not to proceed with this. Oh and that he was left adrift with a lot of his paintings. And I suggested, well, you've all already done battleships and you now have the aircraft carriers. Do a few more and maybe do something called Fighting Warships of the Second World War, kind of yeah. illustrated books. And then when we talked it through further, I tried to persuade Ian that you couldn't just do chapter one on battleships and chapter two on carriers and chapter two on submarines, it just wouldn't work. Well, they don't work alone. It just it m makes much more sense to do it in the narrative form of the six years of the greatest naval war, and then to insert your paintings at particular places along the narration. And I would do the forward. Ah, mission creep sounds like we're setting in here, Paul. Uh, mission creep. <laughs> um, and over time, it was clear that Ian was better off doing more paintings and at a time when I was getting hip replacements which were keeping me at home and I could maybe write a basic narrative but it would be around the paintings of Ian himself and I could do this James because I thought that there were one or two really wonderful new general books on the naval history of the, of the war at sea and of the Second World War at sea, which taken together with the official histories, which I, having looked at again, I felt I had a far higher kind of consideration of Roskill and Morrison than maybe as an arrogant young naval historian 30 years ago I had. But with these larger works in situ, I could do a a narrative which bound together the story and inter, you know, intersected with Ian's paintings and let it come out. And that, the intention was to bring it out maybe as early as about four years ago. The uh, sudden tragic death of Ian, just having a major stroke, a heart attack before Christmas of a few years ago at home, and it was slowed things down very considerably. That was one cause for the slowing the second was that I realized if I was going to write this, I wanted to use the book to put in an argument coming back to the rise and fall of the great powers mm -hmm. about how one, using the, the sort of investigative apparatus of, and investigative tools 
of statistical analysis as well as anything else, try to see how you could argue that the story of the shift in the naval advantage to the Allies by 1943, consequent upon the enormous productive surge of American industrial output by 1943. This is why I deliberately slow the book down in the middle and have something called the, you know, the decisive year 1943, in which there's a chapter seven, which is all of the battles in the Pacific and the, the Mediterranean and in the Atlantic and etc. But there's a chapter eight, which is the shift in the global productive balances. I see. And I do this deliberately and some degree of urging my fellow naval historians to think about it. Naval historians are not really very good at thinking about economic productive elements behind the sea power itself. I think that's considered the boring bit. They want to talk about the battles and the tactics and the strategies yes. and the great thinkers. It doesn't matter so much in their mind about where all this come from, but that is critical, isn't it? Yes. So, you know, the idea that with the arrival of the first new Essex-class carriers in Pearl Harbor and the beginning of June 1943, I got in this past while, and it, it goes back to the book I wrote about 10 years ago called Engineers of Victory. James, I'm, I'm really struck by sentences, particularly to Second World War stories, but I'm sure it's true elsewhere, which begin with the arrival of, with the onset of, with, with the coming of, and the historian in me says, well, where did they come from? How does that happen? How do we get there? So there's another appendix in this book which I had great fun with. My family called it the Great Mariana Sausage Chain, <laughs> which is to look in a series of linked blobs at the story of how bauxite from the bauxite mines in, in uh, Dutch Guyana then get put on ore carriers and escorted across the Caribbean, up the Mississippi, taken to the great aluminum plant, the Alcoa aluminum plant, turned into slabs of aluminum, turned into all sorts of specific parts of what was going to be attached to and central parts of modern American fighters and bombers and fighter and other aircraft. And then those fighters and bombers would be taken off to their carriers and to the Pacific and then would fight in the Pacific and say, the great Marianas turkey shoot. And when one says, what is the ultimate cause of this? You have to say, well, of course, there were these American, superior American fighters by then, you know, Hellcat fighters, but the Hellcat fighters had a large number of parts which come all the way back to those, the bauxite mines. And I wonder whether for naval historians you couldn't say, do something for Nelson's Navy. Oh, I would love this. Where would, you know, you say, well, Nelson is ordering the, the use of the great carronade cannon to demolish the, you know, the, the personnel on the Spanish and the French warships. But carronade comes from the Caron Ironworks in Glasgow. Yeah. And where does Caron Ironworks come from and where do they get the iron ore and where do they and so you go all the way back and there is 
a supply chain. And nowadays in the world, everybody talks about shortages in the supply chain. Yeah. The supply chain is, was critical in the Second World War. And doesn't this bring us back round to Russia's war in Ukraine today? Russia is incredibly short on key things it needs for its war-making industry, deliberately because of the sanctions that have been imposed, imposed on it. And this is why you're seeing closer relations between Russia and Iran, for example, because Russia needs Iranian supplies of things like drones. And so it's that supply line that not only tells you the story of how and why battles are won, but it also tells you about why international agreements are made, how international relations happens, and then loop that all the way back around. And you have to have the movement, the absorbing of forces to go and guard those supplies. Yes. So I remember working on, on Greenland, and Greenland, if I remember correctly, had a, uh, I'm, I'm, I think it was a cryolite mine up in Greenland. Cryolite mine and cobalt. And cobalt, which was necessary for the production of aluminium, aluminum for our American listeners. and. That's why the Americans went and took Greenland so it wouldn't fall into the hands of the Germans who would then take that and use it for themselves. So all of it, all of it is down to supply chains, isn't it, Paul? Yep. At the same time as the US is sending a bunch of Marines to, to protect that base and supply source in Greenland, I didn't know this, James, they send a similar size or perhaps even larger size to Guyana to protect the bauxite there you go. sites. There you go. And this is before they are in the war. Yes. Right. They're reinforcing their supply chains. This this is almost Monroe Doctrine, Roosevelt Corellary-esque in terms of shoring up the supplies into the American mainland. Yes. Lots of lessons which come from this. I mean, uh, the, the interesting thing, James, about doing this book and the reason why I really enjoyed it from beginning to end is there was this Ian Marshall story, this painting story, this enjoyment of looking at where could you put this particular painting and a narrative. How could you get some argument about... Remember, the, the subtitle of this book is called Naval Power and the Transformation of a Global Order in World War II. So it isn't just about battleships and aircraft carriers and the Malta convoy. There's something else happening underneath this story, which is a profound history, whereas at the top there is the history of events. So I, I do pay tribute to the great French historian Braudel because of the way he thought of history in this multi-layered way in which there was a the profound story or almost unchanging story at the bottom. And then there'd be things like the, the Spanish Armada or the Battle of, Le, of Lepanto, etc., which were he called the L'Histoire Levenemore, the history of events. I see. Well, it is not only a beautiful book, but an important contribution to our understanding of naval power during the Second World War. So tell us that title again and where our listeners can buy it. So Victory at Sea, Naval Power and the Transformation of the Global Order in World War II with paintings by Ian Marshall. There you go. It is, it is a mouthful to say, um, uh, quite a bit to Google, so we're going to put a link straight into our show notes so people can go out there and buy it straight away. Paul, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. 
thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.